Hello, my name is Brandon Boat with the Theater of Public Policy. Normally for our podcasts, we feature an excerpt from one of our live shows. We talk to someone about a public policy issue, and then a team of improvisers brings it to life through unscripted improv comedy. However, there's currently a mayoral election happening in Minneapolis for 2017, and we thought we would sit down and talk to the candidates, because if nothing else, it would help us decide who to vote for. Our guest today is Jacob Fry. Councilmember Jacob Fry is finishing his first term representing Ward 3 in Minneapolis. He began his career as a professional runner, competing for the USA in the Pan American Games. He moved to Minneapolis, began a law career at Fagra and Benson, now Fagra Baker Daniels, and then Halunen and Associates. Apologies for any mispronunciation. Our talk with Fry covered his plans to bring more affordable housing to every part of the city, how he would like to reform police training in the city, and how he could build a moat of parking lots around the city. No, uh, so thank you so much for being here. Uh, I've been doing this intro, which actually I don't know if these will end up in the actual uh, finished product, but my name's Tane Danger. I'm with Brandon Boat here. And we've been doing these fantastic, ser- I'm calling it fantastic, I think it's fantastic, series of conversations with uh, the candidates running for uh, mayor of Minneapolis. Uh, today we have council member Jacob Fry joining us, which is very uh, nice and exciting. And so thank you so much for being here. Thanks uh, for having me. Um, I, so I've been just starting with a question that um, when, when we were did the Minneapolis mayoral forum over in Ward 10, this was the same question I started with there. But I think it's probably the best sort of opening question that I at least can come up with, which is just, why mayor? Like, you're on the city council already. You're doing good stuff there. I presume you're proud of the stuff you've done there. So, so why leave that to go do mayor? What can you do as mayor that you're not doing as city council person? Well, I think right now we need a fresh start. Uh, We need a mayor that's going to be in there front and center, digging into these controversial issues, and then ultimately getting results. Uh, And I say this a lot, but being in public service is not about being somebody. It's about doing something. And there's a lot that we can be getting done uh, citywide right now. And, you know, when I look back at it, yeah, I I certainly could have run for my city council spot again. Um, But the things that I promised when I ran for office that I was super passionate about, they've happened. They're done. Um, and so, yeah, I could have come up with some new BS new platform. Wait, um, you feel like you're done? Like you got, like you, did you things, have, like, it does, is there like a Jacob Fry diary and in it you had like, get these five things and like, you have little check marks? I like? have the check marks. I have crossed them off and yeah, they're, they are either done or substantially set in place to the point where whoever is the next council member could finish it off in a brilliant way. So, you know, I didn't want to just stick around to keep the bench warm. Uh, I'm sure there's somebody who's really passionate about doing what's next. And that's not to say that there's nothing else to do in the yeah. third war, because there's a whole lot of other war stuff. Three. Yeah, Utopia of Call the it a day, Midwest. we've done it. Yeah. No, and there's there's still a lot of stuff that we need to accomplish. Um, but the things... What were those things then? Just yeah, yeah. yeah so the things that I, I, I wanted to do was, was, one, affordable housing in middle and upper income areas along the Central Riverfront. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've done Mill City Quarter, which is now occupied. It's at 50% of area median income. We've got the Cameron Building in North Loop, also at, I think, 50 and 60% of area median income. We just approved some of the final zoning for... Uh, the Great River Landing, which is uh, housing at 30% of area median income for people with a felony record. Hmm. Uh, and then very shortly, I hope to approve even owner-occupied affordable on the, on the uh, east side of the river. Um, so we've done actually more yeah. affordable housing developments than anywhere else in the city. Um, in addition, that was the first thing, was affordable. Uh, the second thing was just density and growth in general. 
um, and we've done that at record levels. Um, we've gotten rid of the vast majority of the surface parking lots in just the three or four, three years, three and a half years now. Um, and areas that were previously just oceans of dead space are now occupied with either uh, green space and public realm improvements or, uh, you know, office and residential. Uh, and, you know, we've got a, almost, you know, 40 or 50% of the total growth in terms of residential in the entire city. So that's done. The third thing was a new community-based public school, um, which happened and is now getting awards. Um, we talked about small local business growth, and we accomplished that at record levels as well. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's the stuff that is specifically ward-centric. Now, of course, there's a whole lot of things that we could be working on citywide, and obviously we've done a lot in that, those categories as well. Uh, but no, the, the things that I promised go on down the line. There's five or six of them. They've, every so one of them how happened. much of those then is a mirror for what it would look like if you're mayor? Is it the same sort of uh, – no. No, no, no. No, it's not. I mean, you know, the third ward is, is not um, – representative of the city as a whole. We've got different neighborhoods that have different challenges. They, you will and, take their surface parking lots when they're cold, dead hands. Oh, well, I'm taking surface parking lots. That that I can say in a, as, a, as, a, as, a, I, I, as a not blanket statement, but uh, pretty darn close. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think that surface parking lots and, and dead space that is uh, only to be occupied by cars with no people in it is a thing of the past. So, yeah, that, that, is, that is a thing that is fairly applicable in most areas of the city. Okay. Um, so but, but, you know, the, the north side obviously has its unique challenges as well as uh, potential. Yeah. Um, south side as well. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a macro vision, I think, here for the whole city. So that was one of the, I mean, uh, if we want to just jump in, that was one of the, que- we put this out on Twitter and the Facebook for folks. And one of the things people asked was very much about the, the north side. And they wanted to know sort of. Uh, folks have been talking about investing differently in the north side for a really long time. And I think that probably one of the things in particular that they're concerned about, uh, or they've told them, they've said in these questions that they're concerned about, is how do you do it in a way that actually sort of brings up the community that's there, gives them the tools to, without just sort of bringing in a bunch of folks from outside, developers or whatnot, to sort of create things for them? Well, first, we need to be highlighting the wonderful things that are taking place in North Minneapolis a whole lot more. Anytime people start talking about North Minneapolis, one of the first things that come out of their mouth is, oh my gosh, it's awful and there are bad things happening. And yes, there are struggles, but I also want to highlight the wonderful people, the entrepreneurs, the, the, uh, the, the spirit and the culture that makes Northside really an awesome place. Uh, and by the way, we do have people that are want, that want to live on the north side right now. They've called this neighbor their this their neighborhood for thirty years, and some of them they want to move there. Um, and so I don't want to undermine that. We've got new, you know, we've got art and culture and restaurants and um, and beautiful parkland as well on the north side. So you know, but but. Yeah, you know, the north side has suffered from 100 years worth of intentional segregation, 100 years worth of redlining, 100 years in some cases, you know, we got mortgage fraud left and right, 100 years worth of intentional separation uh, of the north side from one of its most important assets, which is that riverfront, by a whole lot of heavy industrial followed by a massive highway. And all that stuff together leads to the situation where it's no coincidence that the highest rates and levels of pollution and asthma and, um, you know, are on the yeah. north side in the entire state. So, so uh, what, what, what do we do? Uh, and we have 30 seconds. Ready, okay. set, go. No. Uh, what do we do? Yeah. 
Uh, well, there's a lot we need to be doing. Um, you know, first, as you said, Tane, I, I do think we need to be giving the communities that are there the, the potential to, um, they need to be part of the investment. They need to be part of the growth. Sure. It can't just be a bunch of outside interests from one state or another coming in with a whole bunch of money and putting up, uh, you know, condominiums and calling it a day. That's not yeah. how this works. Um, you know, we, we, want, we want to build generational wealth. Uh, and, you know, to me, a big part of that is property ownership. And we have 370 some odd vacant parcels right now on the north side that are city owned. I mean, they are mm-hmm. city owned. We can write the land price down to zero. We can help with down payment assistance. We can help with forgivable loans. Um, these are things that the city, to a certain extent, is involved in now, but we can bolster those those programs so a like, whole lot more. I mean, I, I, we're policy guys. We like talking policy. So, like, how, how much do you bolster it? Where, how much money do you put into something like that? How, how, give me some specifics of how we actually make some of that that work. Well, the first piece I, I, is I do believe that the land values should be written down to $1. Um, so you have a nominal fee that you're paying to, to get the land uh, because one of the problems right now is, you know, you put up a home. If one didn't already exist there, you put up a home, it costs you, you know, $280,000 to put the home up and you mm. can only sell it off for 180. So there's obviously a deficit. You do all this work and then you lose money. I was not a math person, but I could follow that. Yeah. Good. <laughs> uh, and, you know, but in addition to that, we, we do need to be doing more as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you asked, you know, how, how much money? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on the parcel. I think it sure. depends on the, the economic situation of the particular neighborhood. I can't give you an exact figure right offhand. Um, but, you know, we do have these revolving loans that are, that are going through our Community Planning Economic Development Department right now. Um, and I think they could be real strategically focused on, in, on areas of the north side, keeping some, you know, allowing communities of color to generate wealth, um, allowing them to own a home. Um, particularly those that live on the north side. Yeah, I mean, I no, I, I don't think anybody uh, who's running would be against uh, any of this. It's just like it is sort of the how. Like, I mean, these, I feel like there's a lot of this that folks have heard for a long time, and they're like, yeah, but the actual mechanisms to like turn that crank are pretty are challenging because you run into not only as you've articulated these economic pieces, but also. Uh, sort of historical uh, pieces and just people's perceptions of sort of what is possible or what isn't possible in an area. So again, understanding that there's a lot out there. I mean, what it would give me, give us something to chew on here in terms of the actual like ways that you start to, to turn that dial. You mean the ways you start turning the dial in terms of the finances of the operation? Well, yeah, in terms of like trying to get some of these goals that you're talking about, in terms of giving folks in the north side these tools, right? Like we can say sort of we should, but even that is just sort of like a meaningless metaphor. Like what does that mean? By the way, if you um, say anything about bringing people to the table, then every podcast drinker has to drink. Uh, so um, <laughs> I will never say that, or I will say that a whole lot. Yeah, what yeah. are the other? You're running for office. I assume that there's a lot of bringing people to the table. Yeah, there is. Yeah. There, there's a lot of bring people to the table. You know, it's. It's cliche to say, but, um, you know, you do need to give North side and, and people of color a, a voice, a very strong yeah. one. Um, and it's, and it's not just for their sake, it's for the whole city's sake. Um, but you know, more, more, more than that. And by the way, I'm happy to get into this yeah, yeah, on please. how you pay for this stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, the riverfront I mentioned, yeah. um, you know, we have a whole lot of heavy industrial that's been focused along that corridor on the North side riverfront. Uh, whether it's GAF or Northern Metals, Northern Metals is finally moving out. Um, you know, GAF, I think there's some possibilities there as well. Uh, and, you know, as this space is transformed, um, 
the big question is then how do we how do we uh, develop it in a way that benefits the community as a whole so how do you you know retain some lighter industrial how do you ensure that people who are graduating from high school from these areas have the vocational skills and training necessary to have a fast pipeline right into a living wage job on the north side how do you have mixed income housing both market rate as well as affordable along these areas i mean because there's a massive amount of space there i mean we're talking about like a mile and a couple miles even a mile and a half worth of worth of riverfront that is um just primed so i i'm tempted to just ask okay answer your own like series of three questions there right like so how do you uh sort of set folks up with that educational pipeline make sure that there's a mixed use of industry and uh, residential and that there's sort of mixed income housing. Um, well, a couple of those things, you just decide to do it and then you make it happen. Um, but I'll explain how you make it yeah, happen. Yeah. The, so, um, well, first was with the vocational training. You know, mm-hmm. I, I believe that in our schools we should have it. Uh, and I'm not just talking about welding and painting and glazing. You know, I'm talking about coding. You can start teaching a five-year-old to code, and by the time they've graduated from high school, even if they don't go on to college, and college is not for everybody, you've got access to a living wage job. Right. We're teaching five-year-olds to weld. Why not code? Why not code? Well, I mean, that's, that's most definitely going to be the next thing. I barely even know what coding is. Um, I know it has to do with computers, and I know there's a lot of jobs for coding, and I'm, <laughs> I know the basics. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know, th- this is this is the future, and you don't need to go to college to do it, right? Uh, and so we need to be accounting for that. Um, you know, after they've got the vocational training, it's the city that I believe that should be connecting these these young adults with with the jobs and with industry. Um, I mean, that's that's part of what Mm -hmm. the city does. And the city, by the way, controls a lot of the land. One of the biggest powers that the city has that often goes unmentioned is their authority over land, what you do on it, what you put up on it, what's allowed to take place there. Um, And that's a pretty big lever that we can use to both attract as well as restrict certain kinds of changes. Yeah. Um, And. Um, and I think specifically on the north side, we've got a we've got a, some a very strong hand to play. Um, we some of the property we own, uh, yeah. we have site control like Upper Harbor Terminal, right? Um, and so we can say, hey, you know what? Here's where we want to do see mixed income housing. Here we want uh, retail at the base. We want light industrial. Um, we want info and tech jobs that that are available to people graduating from North High. I mean, we can do that. We can write that right into the contract. Uh, so uh, we can broaden this out maybe to talk a little more about housing and development throughout the city because you've been very, very pro-upzoning, which I've been criticized before just using the term upzoning without explaining it. But generally, the idea of more density in different parts of the city, and it's one of the things you pointed to in Ward 3, um, is that something, again, that we see we want to see everywhere, or is it in particular places for you? Where, where do you sort of uh, land on how where upzoning happens under an you know, you never want to make like a blanket statement, except about surface parking um, lots. Except about surface parking lots, and I didn't, I didn't quite go there. No, even you didn't quite. Very smart. Lots. Yeah, I, I can't think of a single surface parking lot at this point that I would want to save. Um, Have you seen the new? Uh, this is a total tangent. Yeah. Have you seen the new series season of Fargo? Like the television no, program, no. the whole premise is that he, like the main character, is the parking lot king of the Twin no Cities. No kidding. Yeah, so it's so, actually a big. I mean, it's a very lucrative deal. It, you know? it is, and apparently, it has ties to like international crime and low level, uh, you know, parolees. But mm-hmm. um, so, just before you get into that, be, you should watch the series. 
it might be incredibly dangerous if the series is to be taken as fact. So, uh, so I'm sorry, you were saying you don't want to do a blanket statement on upzoning, but so give me a sense of like, how do you figure that out then? Where do Look, you go? I'm for growth. There's, there's no doubt about it. I have a long record of being a pro-growth, pro-density candidate and, and uh, elected official. I am. Um, I believe that, you know, to be a world-class city, a world-class city needs people. It needs activity. It needs life. Uh, you know, I want to walk down the street and have a thousand different tastes and smells and sounds and people all packed in on the same street. You know, if you, if you close your eyes and you picture yourself walking down your favorite street in the entire world, whether that's in Paris or in London or in I don't know, Amsterdam, you're not passing by one big vanilla conglomerate. You're not passing by one or two people with a whole bunch of nothingness on the block. It's, it's alive. You know, cities should be alive. And you don't have that without people. And right now, we're a full 100,000 uh, below the population that we once were in Minneapolis. Right. And so... So should our goal be to get to back to that? I, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I can't tell you what's the exact number that's, uh, of, of people that would make this, like, this magnificent utopia. There isn't one. Um, but we can certainly... We can certainly uh, both recruit and attract more and retain more, yeah, uh, more talent within our city. So we want more density. We want more room for for more people. Again, though, going back to my original question, just where, anywhere, everywhere, are there are there sort of parameters that you think about? Like this, are, these are the kinds of places. Yeah, well, I mean, the obvious, the easy, there 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 are obvious ones, which I think are around the core of downtown. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are the those are the really easy ones. You won't hit a lot of controversy. I mean. You will hit a lot. You'll you'll hit controversy anytime you make a substantial change. You know, the only thing that people hate worse than the status quo is is any change at all. Um, but yeah, cities evolve and they change. And if they don't, then they remain stagnant and they start falling behind. Um, so um, you know, yes, around the the periphery of of downtown. Yes, along the light rail. Yes, along significant commercial corridors and activity nodes. Uh, and yes, there are there are also uh, there are also neighborhoods that have been single family homes that uh, that you know as they transition, yes, they they can take additional density as well. Um, you know, I, I'm, I can't go through every single neighborhood no. just to tell you. Well, you know, we've got a couple hours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but I, how much should the city be sort of driving that versus the? the sort of neighborhood saying like, oh, this is something we want or whatnot. Because I think a lot of folks would say, oh, if you wait for the neighborhoods to say they want it, then we will probably be stagnant for a long time because people don't want change. change. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in the third ward, we did a whole lot of work to uh, work with uh, forward-minded Progressive, and by progressive, I don't mean like in the ideological sense. Mm-hmm. I mean in in the progress sense. Uh, progressively minded people. So progressive, not not versus conservative, but versus regressive. Right. Regressive. Right. For, yeah. uh, why don't I just say forward thinking? Okay. Uh, it makes it a little easier. Um, a lot of forward thinking people on some of these neighborhood associations and boards. Um, you know, they created these subcommittees so that developments were re- reviewed. I mean, and in the third ward. Uh, on the Superior Plating site, for instance, as far as I know, a neighborhood association for the very first time ever rejected a proposal because it was too short. Hmm. Um, they wanted it taller. They want. They knew that this site, and they were right, had a massive amount of potential. Um, and right now, you've got a 20-plus story building that's going up. 
And so, again, just going back to so it's the city working with these. Uh, I, I'm just trying to figure out again, sort of the mechanism of how this some of this stuff plays out because uh, there is this tension sometimes between the city has a vision of growing in these different ways, and you know, a lot of neighborhoods might say, "Yes, that's great." Somewhere else in the city, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, a lot, there is in every single city in the country and every single neighborhood in the country there is to a certain extent a, a not in my backyard mentality on via some not everybody some um so what do you do about it well you know i think when when you create a, a plan a comprehensive plan uh for the entire city you, you lay out what are the goals um and are every is everyone going to agree on all of those goals no they are not um and in my mind, in my vision, I want to see affordable housing in all areas of the city. Uh, I, I do not believe in concentrating all affordable, all Section 8, all low income on the north side or in East Phillips. I believe that affordable housing should be throughout. I believe that there should be opportunities for, for growth in many areas of the city. Um, you know, the, the easy lifts are, are the underutilized space. Uh, is the the surface parking lots you know the the one story 1965 structure that is no longer um, in good condition and can be transitioned to something more productive well you say those are the easy ones but I mean I in fact I mean I think that there's actually a lot of spaces just in that that are potential but it's just uh, and again you know that maybe not in the third ward but in other parts of the city you try and build something that's that's you know tall enough that you can't see over it and you know there's a panic in in certain parts of town and so and let's not forget though that there is these controversies in the third ward as well i mean i'm literally getting sued right now the city is getting sued um because a project was in in their minds too tall Um, now that wasn't the whole neighborhood that was a subgroup um there were a lot of people that were for the 40-story tower on the east side of the river as well but there were a lot of people against it i heard them out um, I totally respect their opinion, and at the end of the day, I was very honest with them. Uh, we, we, we don't agree on this one. Uh, I thought it was, a, it was a tremendous opportunity for our city for a ton of different reasons. And so just so I'm a little yeah. specific here, I'm talking about there's a 40-story tower that went up on the east side of the river on the, on the east side of the Central or Third Avenue Bridge mm-hmm. uh, on the old Washburn McGreevy site. It was 40 stories. It was owner-occupied. And by the way, there's a dearth of owner-occupied. There was a dearth of owner-occupied getting built. Um, it was lead cert- It is lead certified. It improves the public realm substantially. They're adding lighting. They're uh, adding bump outs, uh, contributing somewhere in the range of $300,000 to public art. Uh, and taking the streetscape from something that is presently crap uh, it's a surface parking lot with nothing happening and, and putting up a, 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 what will be a beautiful building. Um, the Washburn and, and McGreevy that, place wasn't, it was, you know, it was nice. Uh, I mean, mostly, it was mostly, you know, the dead and their relatives who were appreciating it probably. But, um, yeah, but so this is much better. So uh, those so, folks, they're suing you. So is that is that just like, you know, you, you, you plow forward and you say, uh, yeah, sue me uh i don't know well no you look you really i did we did we did work with with everyone substantially um i mean these and to their credit a lot of these additional perks may not have become a reality without their pushback and so that was me saying 
all right, you know, what do we need? What are we looking for? How can we get the most out of this particular development so that even if you don't like the height, at the very least, you like walking by the site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it will be beautiful. Um, not to mention, it takes a parcel that was previously generating $35,000 a year in annual tax revenue and will very shortly be generating $250, um, uh, $2.5 million hmm. a year in, in annual tax revenue. So that's like a well, $2.5 million increase. Um, every single year. That's a big deal. Um, and by the way, all this other stuff that we were just previously right. talking about, how do you pay for it? Yeah. There's $2.5 million right there. It's more, That's one parcel. More people. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about some other things uh, that potentially cost money. Um, oh, so let, uh, this is fun. Let's talk about policing. Uh, so because you've talked to some degree about um, increasing or revamping, reassessing some of the uh, different programs and trainings that the police department goes through. Um, I'm just curious, maybe you can give us a sense for you of like what because there have been some introduced new uh, trainings and whatnot in the last few years. So what what has happened that needs to either happen more? What's not happening at all that you think needs to happen in terms of the MPD and training and and how that program works? Uh, A whole lot. Uh, First off, we need police reform. Not tomorrow, not next week. We need it really right now. So, And what does that mean? Yeah, it means a lot of things. Um, You know, first I'll talk about the additional restrictions Mm -hmm. and and policies that should be put in place, and then I'll talk about the trainings. Okay. Um, Well, on the the policy side— First, you know, I believe there should be a rebuttable presumption of misconduct if a police officer fails to turn on their body camera and then something bad happens. Uh, and we, we can incorporate that. It should have been incorporated years ago. Um, and by the way, you know, the mayor is an exclusive control and authority over the police department. This, this, is, this is the mayor's job. Um, second, I believe that officers should have to exhaust all reasonable alternatives before resorting to deadly force. This was a proposal that I believe came forward from the uh, civilian Just review. Pl- I think yeah. you meant a police officer should have to exhaust. You said the mayor should have to oh, exhaust. I, it, you can use deadly force if you're mayor, I get maybe. Yeah, I don't know yeah, exactly that, how it works. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the mayor can always use deadly force. Clearly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, th- I meant police officer. Okay. Police officers should have to, yes, exhaust uh, all other alternatives before resorting to deadly force. I think that's, that should be a—it seems common sense to me. Uh, so in a situation uh, as we had uh, with uh, Diamond, uh, with um, uh, the, the case in Southwest Minneapolis, uh, Justine, um, is that one then where, say, if you were mayor, you would say, well, this officer just has to go that, you know, as, with absolute control of the force, you would say, I'm making a decision here to fire this police officer? Yeah, I think that that particular officer, you know, based on the facts that I know right now, uh, yeah, messed up horribly. There's, it's indefensible. Um, I think the Philando Castile incident was indefensible. Um, I do not think that they should be dead right now. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a, there's a legal process obviously that has, that has to take place, you know, everybody, and I believe everybody is entitled to due process and is, is innocent until proven guilty period. And I believe that as a lawyer, I believe that as a, as a resident of the United States, but based on what I know now, yeah, those, 
These are indefensible. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to reconcile those two things because the folks say, well, yes, there, we have this process or whatnot, but there's a, the power the power does rest with the mayor, I believe, right, to, to actually just to demand the resignation of these folks or fire them, I guess, is much more directly. And so, uh, you know, is it something where you sort of wait around for that process to play out or and is it something that where you act? Um, you know, I, I am one that does not like to assume anything. Um, and so, uh, no, I don't think you can just act without knowing all of the facts. And I don't, all I know is what I've read in the newspaper and what every single else uh, other person knows based on what I do know, they should be gone yesterday based on what I know, but I, I would need to actually see everything else yeah okay so uh we kind of took a little bit of a tangent yeah. there but uh so you were talking uh already about um some of these policy pieces what about the training pieces so what has to look different in that side of it well first off you know how many classes have you taken where you weren't paying attention where you just didn't give a crap you is like you're not listening this is not your subject you don't care and so you're sitting there on i don't know daydreaming for an hour or 50 minutes until the class ends like a lot Right. I don't assume that, but maybe <laughs> yeah. uh, you can ask. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah. So just having the training. That only gets you part of the way there. You actually need the officers to be invested in the program. You need to get them on board. You need to have them have a commitment to the public, to the police department and to each other that they are going to hold each other accountable to doing the right thing. Do you think that's not there right now? Then? No, I don't. No, I don't. Um, no, I, I think I think that it that I want to I want to have our police officers and you know take a pledge to the public, to the city as a whole, and to each other that they are going to hold each other to the very highest standards. And you know, yeah, you you do have this kind of camaraderie where something bad goes down, and there's this whole "don't ask, don't tell" mentality, you know. And no, that's not right. Um, I think that police officers should be saying, you know what, we have a, a job that is very important to our city uh, that should be honored, um, but it's not going to get that way unless they're holding each other accountable and unless they themselves are invested in this training. And so I could talk about the training. You know, I could talk. I could. So say, you're saying, at least in practical terms, so we do. Uh, we've introduced an implicit bias training and um, and some other pieces. But you're saying they happen once or, or not often enough right now that they should be an ongoing thing, or that there should be. Uh, how, how? What are you talking well, about? Well, there's there's two changing? there's two pieces here. The first is the first is an overall cultural shift in how the police department operates. And to me, yeah, that's kind of like that's taking a pledge. That's taking a very serious pledge, and you know I've, I've got a couple ideas. It's just a few sentences. It's a pledge that you take to the city um, of Minneapolis, to the residents, and to each other, that you're going to hold each other accountable um, and, and, and accountable to operate the very highest of standards um, of professionalism and respect and dignity, and we can do that. So they take that pledge ahead of time, and you make a big deal about it because it is a big deal. Uh, then next, yeah, the training, it just can't be one seminar. It's not like you can go in and take a five or a six or an eight or whatever hour seminar and suddenly, well, you're rid of all implicit bias. You know, all of us have implicit bias. I have implicit bias. And I'm not going to rid myself of implicit bias in eight hours, not to mention I don't carry a gun. Uh, and so, yeah, these trainings are very important. And it goes beyond that. I mean, we shouldn't have our cops taking out, taking the gun out of the holster if they hear a loud noise. Uh, we shouldn't. 
you know, you shouldn't, if you have to take the gun out of the holster, you shouldn't be putting your finger in the trigger. It should be a two-step process. So your finger is, is alongside of the gun. And then, you know, the first step is put your finger in the trigger. And the second is you pull back. And that's, so you don't have those knee-jerk reactions anymore where suddenly you get a little bit scared or frightened and you've clenched your fist and somebody dies. So is it like pop quizzes uh, on implicit bias? Like is it the, the mayor pops in and is like, hey, everyone. Implicit bias uh, review, or I, I'm just trying to figure out how this actually like plays out. No, I think it's programmed into the training. It's baked into the to the yearly cycle, yeah. um, where you're doing it on a fairly consistent basis. I don't know, um, you know, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not uh, certain as to you yeah. know how often or how much. But I, I do know, statistically speaking, that that what we're doing right now is not quite cutting the mustard. So. Um, I, one other piece on uh, the policing is so there, like uh, so many folks are critical of you because you've taken or you've gotten money from. Uh, I and I can never get it right. Is it the police union or the federation of police officers? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. So I so folks have been very critical of that, and I've just often wondered, like um, I don't know, just as a like cold political thing, why not just like give it back then? I uh, did. You did. Then, yeah, I gave it. Yeah, I don't. It's this is this happened two years ago. This happened two years ago. I got a $200 or $250 uh, donation. I didn't even know I got it. Those are nice. I don't – have we – Brandon, have we gotten any donations lately that we don't know about? <laughs> yeah, all the time. What? What are you doing with them? <laughs> uh, sorry, go ahead. You're buying water and fishy crackers over there. Yeah, exactly. Over Goldfish. That's yeah. the improv comedy lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, you got it two years ago. Got it two years ago. I didn't know about it until months after. There were some restrictions as far as the law goes as to when you could, when and how you could donate it back. I mean, trust me, from a political situation, there's no upside for this. I'm doing fine on, in terms of fundraising. I don't need the $250. Um, we were trying to figure out how you give it back legally, and finally, we just did. Yeah. It's not clear how we could or not or couldn't. Right. But we just did it. Um, so not only did I donate, not only did I give the money back, I also donated more than that amount to a to a good cause um, that is indirectly related. What 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 cause is that? Um, you could. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't want to tell you the oh, okay. the specific person. Um, but oh, it, but it was okay. a, it was a it was a it was a. What's it was it? a young woman who could or a young a young person that that, that had committed suicide. Oh, okay. Um, uh, because of interaction with, with officers. Yeah. Um, uh, one other piece that uh, somebody suggested we ask uh, as sort of a, you know, a, a practicum uh, for candidates is we, we had this uh, situation a couple months ago now uh, with uh, uh, officer or soon to be precinct captain Delmonica uh, being appointed. And folks were just wondering, you know, that played out in a very particular way. Uh, would you, how would you have dealt with that situation where you have the chief appointing someone to a position, uh, that maybe you as a mayor don't think that they're the right person for that. Do you then trump the police chief and as mayor Hodges did, I, I'm just trying to figure out how would you have approached that situation and then actually played it out? You work it out ahead of time is the answer. You are in consistent, you, the mayor should be in consistent communication with the chief. We know that Mayor Hodges and Chief Harto had a tenuous relationship at best. Um, this was, there was not a lot of communication there. You know, there's not a lot of communication between the mayor and the chief, the mayor and the city council, the mayor and the, the independent school and park board, the mayor and the public. Communication is lacking in a massive way. 
Um, and clearly in this instance, communication was lacking between the mayor and the chief. You know, I think there should be a, a practice put in place where you say on all significant appointments and certainly to inspect for inspector appointments, um, we're going to sit down ahead of time and hash it out and say, all right, you know, who are you thinking? Who is, is, is most experienced for this position? Who has the best relationships with the community? Who is able to lead a precinct, which is a difficult job? Um, and you work it out, you get it on the same page ahead of time, and then you can come out as one concerted voice. Uh, that clearly did not happen. This was this, over a series of text messages. Um, and that is, not, that is not the way you lead a police department. That's not the way you lead a city. So uh, going, uh, ain't no text messages or most, uh, just handwritten notes or owlgrams or whatever it is. Well, a, you sit down ahead yeah. of time. This was, this was, we're talking about hours before an announcement is made. We're talking about on the, you know, no, that's not the way you do inspector appointments. And this is apparently the way they had been doing inspector appointments on numerous occasions in the past. And that's just not the way you do it. You have got to be deliberate. It can't be reactive. You got to be proactive with how you're setting up the police department. And, and this was not. Uh, so one other piece, uh, actually, this dovetails really well into communication and whatnot that I'm really interested in is there's a variety of issues where uh, the pro side would say Minneapolis is leading, whether it's the uh, safe and sick time or whether it's uh, minimum wage and uh, different reforms in different areas of the city. And then there's other folks who might say, oh, but we're actually getting way out ahead of ourselves, especially considering that we're part of like a larger region and we have you know, a seven county metro that all kind of people come and go from Minneapolis. So this question of sort of regionalism and what the job of the mayor is in terms of working with other cities, uh, potentially trying to bring them around to uh, following uh, some of the precedents that Minneapolis sets, or maybe having Minneapolis slow down and follow them in certain ways. I'm curious how you think about that part of your job, where it sort of falls on a list of priorities, and if you can sort of talk us through how you'd approach it. Well, we do live in a regional economy. Minneapolis is not an island in and to itself. Uh, you know, not it, yet. Not until we dig that moat. Yeah. Well, and that, that that's coming undoubtedly. That yeah. That, that's also on my moat of surface parking lots yeah. on the <laughs> outskirts of the city. <laughs> Perfect. All right, we'll set that up, and then we can become some magnificent utopia. Yeah, exactly. With 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 great parking around the circumference. Um, yeah, I, I mean, we are a regional economy. Um, that's just a fact. Uh, and you know, I believe I was the only person on the city council, anyway, that that voted to retain the funding for greater MSP, which is kind of our regional recruiting arm mm. um, to the city. And I, I do think having an organization like that matters. That being said, you know, I also like the the competition. Um, you know, I don't like to think of Minneapolis and St. Paul as one entity. Uh, I like to compete and to push each other to try and improve and be better and, and to, you know, meet that world-class city status. So, like, if uh, if you're elected in uh, Di Tower or Melvin Carter or some, one of the other candidates and say, is it we'll have regular, I don't know, arm wrestling contests as a city? Uh, you know, or... Melvin was a very good uh, hurdler back in, and actually he was a good 400-meter runner, too. Oh, so we could yeah. literally and have, so we like... could have a race. And, you know, as a matter of fact, the last time that Melvin and I went out for a run, I do want to say for the record that, um, he busted his ankle pretty bad, and I had nothing to do with it. 
Nice. Good. Uh, even though you have that power of deadly force that right. you will not That's use. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so how do, uh, when you're, act- so can you give us any examples of places where you think, I, this is the part that's actually most interesting to me. Are there things that the region uh, is setting a good example for Minneapolis? We think all the time about things Minneapolis is doing that everybody else should follow. Are there things that the region is doing that we should be paying more attention to and maybe taking a, a cue from? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, there's been this push in the region as a whole for attract- attraction and retention of millennial uh, talent. You know, we know a couple statistics. We know that we are producing more jobs right now than we are able to fill with a skilled workforce. We know that. We also know that by the year 2020, about 50% of the workforce is going to be millennials. Like a staggering figure, you know? And I mean, that means that 50% of the workforce is either going to look like us or substantially younger. And that's scary. Uh, yes, young people are terrified. Yeah. And, and so how are we going to step up to the table to make sure that we are recruiting and retaining this talent? You know, I mentioned vocational training and making sure that we access every single bit of talent we presently have in this city, making sure that they are productive and that they're able to fill these skilled jobs. But, yeah, it's also looking elsewhere as well. You know, we can't shut ourselves down to, to talent coming out, out of the coasts or Chicago or New York City. And, I mean, these are, these are you know, metropolitan areas, and Minneapolis can compete, and we should be. Um, I've just got a, a, a couple last questions. Uh, one, somebody asked uh, specifically, and this is one I think is particularly interesting for you because you're not running for re-election in your council seat. So they wanted to know all these things that you're talking about that you think that the city needs or would do. Uh, if you don't win, Mayor, how do you keep doing that? What does is, what is the, sort of the work look like uh, for you to keep some of that uh, passion and work alive? That's a good question. I was just talking with my wife about this the other day because, um, you know, I, I'm very confident at this point that we're going to win this race. You know, we're feeling good. The message is resonating. We're working hard as hell. Uh, but, yeah, I could lose. And then, you know, what's next on the docket for me personally and for my family? Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is I don't know. That's the, that's the real truth. I know what I'm passionate about. I know things that I want to get done. Um, you know, I, I believe strongly in diverse neighborhoods and desegregation. You know, that, that's something that I'm extremely passionate about. I believe in living amongst a thousand different people that don't look just like yourself. I believe in socioeconomic diversity and age demographic diversity and racial diversity. And, um, God, we are so far from that right now in Minneapolis. We're very segregated, extremely segregated. And that was done by very racist and intentional policies going 100 years into the past. Uh, and I want to find a way to push back on that, whether that's from the mayor's office or anywhere else. Uh, we need to uh, people should have the ability to live in a neighborhood of, of, of their choosing. One question on that that actually it takes us all the way back to, to housing. But I, it is I did want to ask because one of the other pieces, there's a there's a lack of affordable housing. People point to in a lot of cases as to why uh, trying to in certain parts of the city to try and. Uh, affected that way. They also point to, though, uh, and there was a big study that came out that suggested that Minneapolis is really bad in terms of certain uh, regulations and whatnot over uh, how what can be built, how different uh, homes and whatnot for, in terms of 
uh, sort of the design guidelines and things like that. Also, in terms of what does a family constitute one way or the other and those kinds of rules that then limit how many people can live in a particular space. You have to be maybe a direct relative in order in certain parts of the city. So are those things that uh, you foresee sort of uh, taking on or, or changing? Are there elements of that? Well, the final thing you mentioned I'm taking on right now is a council member. Um, so the final thing you mentioned was a, a restriction in our city that prevents more than like three people who are not related by blood to live with each other. And like, by the way, this happens all the time um, that more than three people that aren't related by blood, they live, they live together. And if you've got a, a big old house with 10 bedrooms, and this is just an example, you got a big house with 10 bedrooms and every single one of those bedrooms has adequate light and adequate square footage and you're not throwing a mattress in the kitchen or the bathroom. Um, it's habitable and it's fair. Like, why should it be that you can only have three people that aren't related by blood living there? That's ridiculous. Right. How else are we going to get, you know, the real world Minneapolis right. to happen? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and we, we can move in that direction. And we're going to this year. Okay. Um, and what about design guideline things? Is that something? That... Yeah. Yeah. Design guidelines. I mean, that I, I wouldn't necessarily call that within the mayor's purview, and, and I don't claim to have any sort of uh, monopoly on good taste. If anything, it's probably the opposite. Um, and so I don't know that I'd be the one to determine design guidelines. Um, I would leave that, leave that to the pros. And, and the great thing is that we've got some very talented people on the council that have unique expertise yeah. areas. Um, and you know, I want to work with them. I want to yeah. work with the city council and, and let them run with the particular issues that they're passionate about. Uh, so the last question that we've been asking everybody, uh, and it was Brandon's idea, was, so uh, you're mayor, and let's say you can do one uh, big thing that you get a mulligan on. So if it doesn't work out, you can just take it back, and it's like it never happened. What, so high risk, high reward, what would you try? Well, I'll give you two. Oh, okay. Only one of them gets a mulligan, so you better hope one works out. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, the first, and we didn't really get into this, is, um, I mean, this is, this is a big idea, and I'm doing it regardless, uh, because I believe in it full-heartedly, and, and this has to do with affordable housing, and specifically, deeply affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, they talk hypothetically about, um, well, we need more affordable housing. No more, and we don't need any more housing at 50 and 60% of area median income. We need it at 30% of area median income, which I totally agree with it. But then you need to pay for it, mm -hmm. and you need to figure out how to get it done. And so we are in this era right now where we're losing a lot of subsidy that we previously got to build affordable housing. Uh, we often rely on 4% and 9% low-income tax credits to build affordable housing. We rely on community development block grants, CDBG funding from the federal government, and supposedly that's all going by the wayside or a whole lot of it. So where is the city going to get this money from? And I believe that we have to step up and put our money where our mouth is if we're really going to make sure that everybody can live in a great city. Um, our great city. And to me, that looks like this. Hopefully working with some of these other surrounding jurisdictions, Hennepin, Ramsey, Bloomington, Edina, St. Louis Park, Brooklyn Park, et cetera, et cetera. I want to set up a separate pot of money that's not competing with some of your classic city issues like fire and cops and streets and say, this is for affordable housing. And then you take parcels, parcels valued at, say, $400,000 and above. Uh, and you say, all right, we can anticipate that these parcels are going to gain in value over the next, say, six years. So it's $400,000 now. It's $460,000 six years from now. 
Well, that additional $60,000 worth of value results in new tax revenue. And if we were to pool a percentage of it, say 30 or 40% in a separate pot, then in one fell swoop, yeah, we would have enough money to really end this crisis. We would solve this crisis. We could end homelessness. We could end homelessness if we do this right. And this is a big, big thing. And so I'm not really asking for a mulligan on this one, but like it's going to be difficult. It's going to be controversial. And like I'm kind of going all in on it because I believe it full heartedly. Um, the other one, and this is this is potentially like you know this this could work beautifully, and this could be a bust. Yeah. Um, is it Ice Town? Like from Parks and Rec? Like we're going to have a big ice ice village that we're all going to. You don't watch Parks and Rec. I watched Parks and Rec, but I didn't see this particular. The, the, I there's, there's this ben Wyatt has a whole thing where On he's ice going town? to do ice. He did Ice Town. Oh, when really? He was a mayor. <laughs> and uh, but if that's not your idea, that's fine. It didn't well. It didn't I, work for him. I'll have to catch up on Parks yeah. and Rec, I guess, and then maybe I'll change my answer. Um, but so if you go down to um, there's a couple things here. I, I I think you know great cities find ways to highlight that which that which sets them apart, and a big part of what sets us apart is the Mississippi River and the Central Riverfront. I mean, people don't realize that the Mississippi River goes right through the center of Minneapolis, and this is like a masterpiece right there that we should be highlighting. Um, And uh, so, you know, one, I think the post office should be transformed, revamped, and uh, uh, not just pitching snail mail anymore. Um, You know, you could have cafe space, umbrellas on the backside. You've got these alcoves along the riverfront that are presently not activated that could be some form of market. Um, and then, and this is the potentially weird part, um, if you if you look around the apron to the falls, mm-hmm. there are these large cylindrical concrete slabs. And you know what I'm talking about? They used to be used for, I'm assuming, like when a boat would come down, and yeah. this was like the last-ditch effort. This was, we made a horrible wrong turn here, bail out, let's see if we can like throw the anchor on one of these concrete slabs, something like that. Yeah. They're large. They're very stable. There's a lot of them. They circle the entire apron that leads to the falls. You could put a boardwalk on there. You could have a boardwalk that starts on the west side of the river that wraps quite literally around the falls. This would be our version of the High Line, but like five times cooler. Um, I mean, that's a highlight to the city. That could be, I mean, you could have... You could have like kind of cafe and bar space out there. You could have it programmed with games and activities, um, all while looking over the Mississippi Falls. There, it would, I, we're at the end of our time. I don't want it's, it's tricky to build a new bridge over the Mississippi. I believe that there's federal regulations. Sort of. Oh, there's tons of regulations. This is not going to be an easy thing. I think and, it's, that, and it's also not a bridge. It's not a bridge. So Walter Mondale won't try and fight you uh, mm. to stop it from happening. This is no like, bridge. This he's is mean. Yeah, <laughs> it has to be. This ain't no bridge. Yeah, this is this is just a, a walk that doesn't even extend to the. It doesn't extend from one side of the river to the other. So it's just wait. literally built on t- a top of the cylindrical concrete. So, so you slabs. have to. So you have to swim to the edge of it, or no? I just wouldn't go across. It would so it would start on the west side. Oh, it wouldn't go all the way. It to wouldn't the go side. all the way to the other side. Right. Oh, so and it's a more at like, least that's the way I've been it's picturing like a, it. Although you know, uh, I got to talk a to the engineers. Plank or something. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. like a, like a pier, but really, really a long. Pier. Yeah. That wraps all around yeah. the apron. That's that's beautiful. Yeah, kind of cool. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And what what will it be named? Uh, we have to think about this the one. Jacob Fry, uh, not Memorial Bridge. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, on that note, uh, I want to thank you so much for thank taking you. the time uh, to talk to us. So, 
good luck on the campaign trail. I hope that it's fun. That's what I've been saying. Well, to this folks. is fun. This yeah. is fun. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you for listening. These were recorded live at Folklore. Folklore is a digital experience company with offices in Minneapolis and San Diego. They specialize in digital strategy, user experience, design, and development for small businesses and large corporations alike. Learn more at folklore.digital. Our music was composed by Keegan Fraley. If you want to find out more about the theater of public policy or come to an upcoming show, you can find us on the web at www.t2p2.net.